Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi, it's Glenn James. This message is being played at the start of all podcasts that Simo Interactive produces. It has come to my attention that there was a licensing issue with the music that we were using for our shows. And until that issue is resolved, and it might take a couple of weeks because I'm overseas at the moment, I've just decided out of an abundance of caution, I would stop using any music until we've resolved the issue. So if you are new to the podcast, you probably won't notice anything different. If it's not your first time, this is why there is no music in the episodes at this time. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. Using equity, we're going to thrash that out today. Should we use it or should we not? Uh, we're going to talk about the six-year capital gains tax rule and, and the ins and outs of that. We're going to talk battle axe blocks and uh, the pros and cons of doing a development like a battle axe block and the shared equity scheme, Emily. We're going to see what a joint venture might be like and the pros and cons of that. So all that and much more, let's rip into it. Sounds like there's a lot of good questions in there, John, and you beat me to it this week. You got into the Facebook group and you've asked the people, what do they want to hear? I love it. It's very unlike me. <laughs> and, and, and speaking of the people, we would be super grateful if you could tick the follow on Spotify, if you're using Spotify or something else, tick the follow and also a share. A share would be unreal. If you're thinking that you've got an episode that you've loved, just share it onto your friends and someone that you don't know. I was just talking to someone the other day, Emily, and, and they were like mid-50s and they listen to our show and they love it. So you don't have to be your age uh, to be able to listen to this cool show. 100%. You don't have to be a millennial and yeah, share it around. Even, you know, the little share button also shares to Instagram, which I love. Oh, so good. Yeah, easy downloads. So yes. That would be great. All right, let's get into it. Let's do it. What's the first cab off the rank? We've got a right. bit of a mixed bag today. Yes. So a man says, what are the pros and cons of a battle axe style house with a shared driveway? Are they worth the purchase if everything else about the property ticks the boxes? Mm. Mm. Oh, I love this one. This has come up um, a lot recently with the debate between a duplex, which is a you know subdivision with a shared wall down the middle versus this battle yep. axe subdivision. Should we each give our opinions? I wonder if we have the same Go thoughts. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you, you lead us off. Okay. So my opinion is a battle axe subdivision works the best when the front property has its own entrance. And so that the actual division at the back of the property, which is the little L shape, doesn't technically share the driveway. And so it's fully freestanding, no shared land uh, and completely independent. That's the best type of battle axe. If you are sharing the driveway and house number one at the front has to access the rear to get into their property, um, usually a garage or a carport at the back. It's not the end of the world. It's not a deal breaker. And for me personally, actually and professionally, I would take uh, a battle axe subdivision over a side-by-side, even though people do like street frontage with a side-by-side duplex, I personally value detached properties. And so, yeah, I would personally Mm. take that. Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> well, 
We, we've done a battle axe style that you referenced, but did have a common driveway. So the, the front one we built, it, it had a shared driveway down the left-hand side and there was room for a double garage for, for both dwellings. Um, and the garages were basically attached in that sense. The, the middle wall, the dividing wall was the, was the garage wall, which still gave that element of privacy, but there is a shared driveway uh, in that example. Now, absolutely agree with you. The ideal is to have your own privacy with your own driveway and uh, and you don't even know that they're there conceptually. But I suppose for the developers out there, if you're thinking about looking at something like this, you might find the oldest house in the street with a, with a big block. You know that council has the ability to subdivide or has precedence in that street for subdivision. And they would be, generally speaking, they'd be Torrens titled um, with even with a shared driveway. So it means you can sell one off, keep one, etc. So I really love that as a wealth creation strategy because you're adding value to the land. And then if you build and then say, well, I want to sell one or, or and, and keep one, you're still getting usually pretty good rents because they're high quality finishes and you're getting some good tax depreciation as an investor. So you've got the flexibility, buy one, uh, sorry, sell one, keep one, sell both off or keep both if you're in a cash flow position where you can do that. So yeah, a man, I really love the battle axe style house. I would just check what the comparable sales are for, for completed duplexes in the in the street and just know that you reverse engineer that process. And I actually did a development series on um, on this. It went for about three hours and uh, it, you basically said, okay, this is how much we can sell them for at the end of the day. Let's go back a step and say, right, this is what we can build them for. This is what is in, I suppose, desirable in the suburb. And then let's then say, right, how much can we secure the land for, the holding costs, the stamp duty and all those things and then say, right, now are we paying too much for this? Is there going to be no profit in the end if we do the numbers this way? So yeah, love the actual process going through that and uh, and the and the positives or the upsides. What are the negatives? Well, I was just thinking like, do people generally prefer, because when you do a battle axe, like, usually the front house is like the old house and that the back is, you know, the new, brand new build. And so some people worry, like, are they too dissimilar? Like, is it not a good thing to have two very different properties on the one block versus the duplex side by side, which are basically mirror images of each other? And so therefore quantifying the value is quite easy because they're identical products. So you can actually kind of quantify that better. The other consideration in a battle like subdivision is the shared driveway insurance. It's only a small expense, but if you are sharing a driveway, technically, most people would have an inactive body corporate, but you should really be having a shared um, public liability insurance because it's common property. So it's, you know, responsibility of both. And then for some people, like I touched on in the beginning, like they want that street frontage. So if you are purchasing the rear one, you don't really have that feeling of like, like that's my home, like from the street, you know, some people do like that, um, that piece of seeing their front door from the street. So 
Yeah, and and I suppose in opposition to that, some actually like the privacy. It's like I, I don't want people to know where I live sort of thing and, and I can just go out and, and behind the scenes I've got a house and no one knows I'm there sort of thing. So it really does depend apples for apples what, what we like. I suppose the other thing to take into account, you mentioned about keeping the house at the front and building a couple at the back or one at the back so you've got old and then new. We're actually doing one with a client at the moment where the old house will stay at the front, They're going to renovate that and then build two at the back. So what's the appeal to to hold on to that older house is the street frontage, isn't it? And you haven't got the street frontage for the other two, but you do have the fact that they're brand new. And through the last couple of years, we know that building new and having something completed is very attractive because of the building uncertainty and the trades and the cost to build and all those things. So a lot of people like it actually you're all done, ready to move in. Now, just one thing on that is we, we're talking about this new way of living where it's the medium density living has to, uh, I suppose, be well, there's an undersupply of medium density living, isn't there? So something like this will be very popular for downsizers in particular and also upsizers, those that are going to build a family. Maybe one, two, three kids can fit in a three to four bedroom townhouse quite comfortably. So understanding that you need a bedroom, I believe if you're building two stories, you need a bedroom downstairs, especially for the downsizers that don't want to climb stairs. Yeah, that's one of the most common requests when we buy double story townhouse is at least one bedroom on the ground floor. Even people just think about like worst case scenarios of themselves, like even millennials, right? If they broke a leg, they don't want to be having to walk up and down the stairs to get to their bedroom. They want to have one on the the ground floor, which, um, you know, rarely happens, but considerations. Yeah, that's right. I was actually visiting a friend in Canterbury in, in Melbourne there last month, actually, beautiful suburb. Uh, and they just bought a property, but they, it came with a lift uh, and it was just this massive lift. It was so, it was like you were in a hotel room, but they never use it. But essentially, yeah, the, the previous owners were older and they, um, they built that in there. And it's, uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. Good, good for the kids to, to jump in and uh, be lazy. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Next question. Alan says, is there a drawback to using equity from our principal place of residence to purchase the first investment property or is it normally more preferable to have a cash deposit looking from a standpoint of getting into the market sooner? And then Eliza says, would love to know this too. So Emily, let's give them the answers. Yeah, Eliza, I can see she's second to this. So um, I think the biggest thing to get in sooner is sort of the, the leading comment there would be obviously you need physical cash of some sort for a deposit when you're actually doing your offer and you're putting it forward and you're successful in securing the property. But a lot of people don't realise there's a misconception that you need 10% cash available to buy a property. You don't. Um, You can use in the form of equity and that literally just sits in, let's call it the cloud, but you know, like it sits in no man's land. It's not physical cash that's um, available to you as a draw out. And so you can negotiate like even just a 10 grand deposit until settlement and the balance to be payable at settlement. So I'm personally of the view and certainly the way that I've done my investment properties is that I put the least amount of cash down. I use equity to supplement the rest of you know, the d- deposit essentially um, to avoid LMI if I can. Um, that being said, I have paid LMI for a purchase just to get in. So yeah, I'm personally of the view minimal like liquid cash and the rest topped up with 
the equity from the bank, um, from your current property and get in sooner. But I guess it comes back to fundamentally, what are you trying to achieve? And if there is a need for speed, then how can you fast track that process? Yeah, totally. Yeah, Alan, it's a, it's a great one and so common given that in the last maybe three to five years, those who have held property, that has gone up considerably, all of a sudden could be sitting on a mountain of equity. Now, obviously, to extract that equity, we need high serviceability or, or, or solid serviceability, meaning your income uh, minus all your expenses and debts, etc., I think it's a no-brainer that you would grab your equity out and have it sitting there, as you mentioned, Emily, in the cloud. You you actually physically extract it out. It sits in an account. As soon as you draw it down, you start paying interest on it. So there's no downside, especially if valuations are solid and the valuers are jumping out of bed saying, yeah, we love this area or we love the climate right now. You get your equity out and have it sitting there. You don't have to use it for another 12 years if you don't want to, right? So that's the, that's the positive of it versus cash that you want to be paying down on your bad debt, which is your your principal place of residence. So I think it's a no-brainer. Someone came to me last week and and, um, said, oh, we want to use our equity now because we've paid out our home loan. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, you've probably wasted 15 years of potential investment because you could have got that equity out sooner, but in their own mind, they just wanted to rid that bad debt. Um, so great situation to be in, but what's the opportunity cost? So yeah, I think, uh, the downsides of drawing equity out is we're paying interest on it. So we're essentially loaning a hundred percent of the purchase price, aren't we? Um, plus the stamps. So maybe 102, 103%. So we really need to be mindful of the cash flow. And given that interest rates are a lot higher than they were 18 months ago, to find positively geared property based on the current interest rates is a lot harder. So really understand your cash flow situation. And I know investors and me included that have used equity to hold some of the or, or to help with some of the holding costs through the the first few years until the rents start to pick up. Yeah, for sure. And I think this whole consideration of the questions around, you know, buying an investment property. There's also a consideration there, which is going to feed in nicely to another question that's come through about the six-year rule, but about whether like getting the strategy right for the type of property that you're going to purchase and where, and sometimes coincidentally, the property that you've bought as your first home may, not in all cases, but it may actually make sense to flip it to an investment property and then go rent best for a period of time or um, buy another investment property and rent vest, so you've got two under your belt. So uh, we always talk about strategy, John, and I think it's the most overlooked component of property. People just stabbing in the dark. Oh, I want to buy a property because you know I've got this deposit and I don't need one or I want one. And I just think think about all the avenues. It's not actually a very straightforward thing in isolation. It's actually you know complex scenarios that you need to think about to achieve the best possible outcome in your investment journey. So I think, you know, thinking that strategy through and I know, John, you've done um, an episode completely dedicated to the strategy that you go through with your clients that is worthwhile a listen and we'll find the episode number so that people can listen to that as well if this is a consideration for them. So we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to talk about this mysterious six-year rule. Ooh, (laughs) cue Mm. the mysterious music. We'll be back. (laughs) 
If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mia says... Six-year CGT free rule, which is capital gains tax. Six-year capital gains tax free rule for earning income from principal place of residence. Does it only apply if you move back into your home within or at the end of that six years? And how long do you have to live in again to be able to be exempt? Now, she's got a second question, but let's get to this complicated first one first. We're not accountants and we're not giving any sort of advice here, however... There is a grey area, as there is a lot of the times with um, taxation and accounting, that uh, how long you actually have to live in before you move back out again, okay? And the ATO in the event of an audit and whatever else will will look at things like, okay, removalist invoice and and electricity in your own name and and you're you're basically on the um, electoral roll, you're, you're at that address, et cetera, et cetera. So the time required to move back in for is undetermined as far as I know, Emily. I agree. I was about to say the same thing. All I've heard really around the traps is that you need evidence with, yeah, bills with your name on it and that address. I actually think it would be very helpful if they did mandate a minimum period, even if it was three months. But then I think it's circumstantial as to how long someone might move back into that property for. And if they're strategic and basically know how to navigate the system to make it work for them, then, you know, good on you. Yeah. Look, I actually had thoughts of uh, when the kids are long gone, Amy and myself might, might grab a Winnebago and, and, and travel around the country and, and people would um, rent our property from us and we would move out, et cetera, but then come back in within that six-year period, stay at home for six months or three months or whatever it might be, and then off we go again for another five years or something. That was a bit of a pipe dream that that I thought about the other day. But that's uh, essentially what the rule allows you to do right now. Which makes sense. So it means that you're avoiding or should we should we backtrack on what happens if you don't move back in? Yes. So so essentially if you don't move back in, you're liable for capital gains tax through that period. Now when we talk about capital gains tax, 
with any sort of investments or any assets that you've got, the first 12 months, if you live in it longer than 12 months, there is a 50% capital gains tax exemption, meaning that if you if you sell the property and you make a profit of 300000 and it's been an investment property per se, the first 150 of that 300 is capital gains tax free in your pocket, do what you want with. The other 150 is taxed at your marginal tax rate in the year that you sell that property. So if you don't move back in in that six years, what happens? What happens? Yeah. <laughs> what, what happens? If you, you've, you've uh, moved out of it for seven years and then you move back in. Yeah. So you wouldn't be eligible for any concessions or exemptions. So basically, Correct. yeah, you pay the tax on the whole amount, not, you don't get any reduction. No, absolutely not. And the fact that you're renting it out in that time is in some ways irrelevant as long as you're moving back in within the six years, right? Yeah. Now, you've got to check with your accountant on um, what CJT may be payable in any instance but and always refer back to them. But uh, if you are renting it out, you're earning an income from it, you're paying tax on that essentially anyway. So, yeah, there's swings and roundabouts in respect to that. But hopefully, Mia, that exam... Um, that clarifies that for you as much as we can. And in, just in terms of a strategic note, uh, if you plan the sale of your property and you know there's going to be a big gain that contributes to your capital gain tax, you might strategically look at a year that might be a lower income year for whatever reason. Maybe you've taken leave without pay to take a big holiday or something, or you know, you might look at why one year might be less on your normal income and salary versus another and try and plan it strategically ahead of time. Yeah, you might go around Australia in a Winnebago sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I can just picture you doing that. <laughs> can you? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. you'd be living yeah. that life. <laughs> You've got to visualise it, don't yeah. you, to make it happen? Yes. Uh, Mia says, uh, second question, is there a limit to how much you can earn from renting out slash share housing some rooms in your PPOR while maintaining an owner-occupier mortgage and interest rates? That is a curly question. Yeah, as in like... Uh, the, when I hear that question, I sort of think as a ethical standpoint, but also then like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, we're in a rental crisis, right? So like rooms in houses are actually really valuable. Yes. Um, but in terms of like, it's a different question when you're subletting a lease, uh, you can't charge more than what um, the lease is. But when it's your own home. Yeah. So there's no limit, no. but we're, um, we're going, we're coming from the angle of ethics, right? Yeah. We rent out three bedrooms and we live in the other bedroom and we charge $300 a week per room or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. we need to declare that and pay tax on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. If we if we don't, then that's illegal, right? Yes. So there's no limit. You could charge 600 a week or 1,000 a week in 10 years' time. Like the number is irrelevant. It's more the case of how we go about it from an accounting point of view. Yeah, and so then in terms of logistics on that, declaring that as effectively income because it's not – if it's your PPR, it's not an investment property. It's not like you can mm, claim. claim. Yeah, Deductions, yeah. Yeah, so you've got to weigh up the pros and cons of that. Sounds like an accountant question to me. Yeah, absolutely. But it, generally speaking, if you're living in it, it shouldn't affect your CGT ruling. Mm-hmm. It, it will just be taxable income that uh, will mean you, you have a higher tax bill. Yeah. 
So Matt Ball has asked a question. My partner and I are looking at a first property next year and we've been considering the shared equity scheme as an option to get something with three beds a bit closer in. I remember a few weeks ago, you mentioned that you weren't big fans of this scheme. Can you expand a bit more on your concerns? Great question, Matt. And look, I think to kick this one off, there is an element of how this scheme may pay play into your strategy. So I have only helped one person buy with a shared equity scheme so far. Um, I haven't had a huge amount of experience in it, but for that particular situation, it was that it got them in sooner. They fit the bill for the requirements and their view on it was that, well, anything to get into this market sooner is is a benefit. And they're kind of of the attitude that they'll deal with the ramifications later of, you know, what that might mean in terms of some of the rules about how you have to basically release the shared equity and what that looks like. I probably take a bit more of a, uh, I want to know everything approach and think about the long term um, before I enter into something like that. And to me, it's almost a last resort option. I wouldn't be on my top three of how I would get into the property market personally. Yeah. It it feels a little bit like a a ticket to the Taylor Swift concert, right? Oh, here we I, go. I just, He's talking about Tay-Tay. <laughs> or, or maybe the AFL Grand Final <laughs> or something bigger than that. But I, I just want a ticket. I want to get in. Yeah. I don't care where I'm sitting sort of thing, yeah. right? I could be up in the nosebleeds. And that's the that I suppose the approach that we spoke about a few weeks ago, what uh, Matt's referring to was, okay, as you mentioned, Emily, a last resort, but does it get us in the market to allow the market to start performing for us? And we've got a portion of that growth going forward. If we have to give some of that to the government, then we're happy to do that. But understand how that's going to play out for you and what your long-term aim of this is. If you're wanting to to get in and get out in a in three years to be able to upgrade to a better location, then yeah, you just need to know what the implications are and, and um, what portion you're keeping and what's potentially going back to the government on that. And there are also price caps on these purchases. And so for some people, they've actually been strategically wanting to buy something that needs renovation. One thing you need to be across is that they actually have to approve works that are, are worth over a certain amount. So you can't, whilst it is your property, you got to remember you're basically in a shared JV. Yeah, yeah, like a, uh, a joint venture with the government. And so you do have to run yeah. it past them if you want to do things. And that could be limiting. I actually don't know anyone who has gone ahead and done works to a property that they're in the scheme with. But I would, if anyone actually is listening and has, can yeah. you write into the show? Because that would be a great story to hear. Yeah. And, and I personally haven't done one with a client or help them do such a thing. But I, I suppose, again, what we spoke about a few um, weeks back was, okay, what are the alternatives? Is this the absolute last resort? Can we do a joint venture with someone we know that's not the government? Uh, is that a better option? Is it friends or family or, or someone that we've reached out to that that has some capital that can help us get in? Uh, can we save a little bit longer? Is it only six months to wait until we actually have enough to do it ourselves? Like have a look at exhausting all resources before we go and use this. Um, absolutely, it does get you in the market sooner and that's got to be a benefit if that's what you're after and you want to live in it or, or uh, whatever that may be. And the, the I suppose the positive of this, Emily, is that you can, as soon as you own it, you can, in the early stages of owning it, you can pay more back to the government so you own more. 
right? So that's the positive of it. If you see that you're going to come into some money or you you cash flow heavy once you get in, that's a benefit so that they don't take as much of the pie when you sell it. Yeah. And um, that's probably something that I would like to be across more is how do you like logistically, how do you get out of the scheme? You know, because all well and good to get into it and get you in the market, but how do you get out? And if you're relying on market growth, or if you're relying on, yeah, as you said, your cash flow might be higher once you're actually in because your ability to say the deposit has been the barrier. I would personally look into more of the guarantee scheme, which is where it's more about them covering the buffer. So you don't have any LMI entering that actually own any of the property. They just guarantee a portion um, as opposed to sharing equity. I think that would be like above mm. the list. The, yes. Yeah. yeah, I agree. All right. Final question. And there's plenty more. Sorry we didn't get to all of them, but hopefully we will one day. Dean, this is right up your alley, Emily. Oh, I know Dean. I just realised who it is. You know Dean. There you go. Well, maybe Dean's asked you, but now he's asked the whole of Australia and the world. (laughs) If you had 200,000 in deposit in Melbourne, would you rent vest or purchase a PPOR? Now, before you answer this first, I spoke to someone last uh, month. When was it? What are we in October? Yeah, September. They had 200K in Sydney and were literally about to cry because they couldn't get anything, even though they had this hard earned 200K of savings. That is wild, isn't it? Yeah, that's crazy. I feel sorry for Sydney siders. It's pretty dire mm. out there when you look at the Sydney um, property market. Yes, it is. So, what are you doing? Are you rent vesting or are you PPORing? Well, it's a pretty significant deposit to be rent vesting in that I you could buy multiple properties as in you buy two properties with that sort of deposit. Yes. Um, so that's a question in itself. But I think the where my brain goes is if I do rent vest, how quickly could I get some growth that would actually start to see more than the deposit I actually started with? And so I'm probably more inclined to rent vest with a view of a five to seven year plan to then springboard into a PPR after that. And and most likely I would buy two properties with that amount of deposit in areas that are set for growth um, with the purchase price of, you know, 500K each or four and six, yep. something like that. Okay. So... Did you answer the question? Oh. Are you <laughs> are you PPOR no, or <laughs> um, no? I would rent vest with that with that money. You'd rent vest, yeah. okay, because the two hundred's not giving you enough to to buy something substantial. Totally, like I know, even in like the most desirable pockets of Melbourne's kind of not mm. as bad as Sydney, but I know that I would need like closer to three to three fifty in deposit plus you know stamps to get a property that. I, actually want to live it. And I'm not even talking anything like huge. I'm just talking like yep. in a good area. So yeah, Melbourne specific, I would rent vest. Okay. So Dean couldn't with his 200, if he could borrow 600, could he not get an 800K two better somewhere close to the city or, or somewhere that he'd like? I don't know where he wants to live, by the way. Melbourne's a pretty big area. Yeah, he could. I mean, 800K is probably a, a good budget. You're probably looking at two-bedroom villa unit territory in the inner ring or a two-bedroom apartment in like the real inner ring, but I, it wouldn't have a huge land component, maybe a small courtyard or a balcony. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. So he's saying, look, save your pennies or, or go and rent vest and live happily ever after until... Uh, a period of time that you've got more capital to to deploy towards your own home. Yeah, ideally come back with like 1.3, 1.5. <laughs> 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 
Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully the market's not three mil by then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a really good question and it's it's probably every second clarity call I do I answer this question yes. in some way, shape or form or it comes into play because it, it's a real this house versus unit debate is just it's overheated mm. and and it's like because of the housing unaffordability and there's no one size fits all answer or response to this no. um Dean unfortunately so what I would probably say is what do you want to do in 10 years time where do you want to be what do you want to be doing how much money will you be earning where do you want to be living what do you want to be living in you're going to have kids you're going to get married any of those sort of things and then bring it back to are you open to renting for the next seven to ten years? Because I think that's what's required to let your investment portfolio grow. Like you, you can't just go and and I agree, split those that two hundred into two purchases, but then hopefully make a million and sell them out in three years. That's just not going to happen. Mm. So we need to give them a chance to grow, don't we? Yeah, for sure. People, I mean, it is a millennial mentality. We want instant gratification. Mm. Um, And so when that translates to the property market, we're like checking it, you know, every quarter, what's going on here? Um, And the problem is... um, they did get instant gratification in the last three years, yeah, those that were so in. True. So it's not it's normal. now the new expectation. <laughs> it's not normal. It's just that the period of growth happened to be most recently with the property cycles. Yeah. But yeah, I think, do you know what I think has changed over time? Even in the time that we've been doing this podcast, John, the notion of and the idea of renting is really not frowned upon. Like it's just kind of what people do. You, no. you do rent. And so that in itself as a societal sort of idea has certainly come a long way. Um, yes. But is that out of necessity? Because that's all I can do. Well, do you know what's so funny? It's kind of flipping the other way now. There's some people that are like, well, rents in certain pockets are now unachievable. So it's actually better to buy. So it's come this full circle. Mm. But yeah, for some people, it is out of necessity or circumstance. And depending on, you know, it's always as you... What's your little saying about as as low as your ego can? What do you say about ego and <laughs> at rentals? About. I don't know. Drop your ego. You've said it a few times before. Where like <laughs> is, is what your ego can handle is like the lowest. You know, are you in a share house with six other people or are you, you yes. know, in an apartment? Um, yeah. Yeah, and and this is present company excluded. Anyone who's listening to this have been really diligent in their twenties and and save some money and have a good deposit. So you're right. The the rents are equivalent to the holding costs on a mortgage for, for most people in, in most areas and unless it's a smaller regional. But if we've wasted our money in our 20s, mm. we m- might be hitting our 30s with a very low deposit and we're paying $700 a week in rent and we can't be saving any money because of that rental cost and the cost of living. So we've got, we can't do anything but rent for the next 10 years until we get our act together to save. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and it's hard. I guess it's where you see value and what you ultimately want to mm. do with your money goals. For some people in their 20s, they've spent it all on travel and they've got all this life experience and yes. they're sort of starting from scratch in their 30s, which is not uncommon. But, no. yeah, it's it's such a it's such a minefield actually to work around as to what the yeah. right thing is to do. Um, totally. But look, back to the original question, good problem to have 200K <laughs> yeah. deposit with not knowing what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, great problem. Great problem. And I think, yeah, what do you want, Dean, is um, how high on the 
priority list is, your principal place of residence and what's it going to look like in eight to 10 years and are you okay to rent vest um, would be the key questions we need answered there. Yeah, for sure. Well done. Well, that's a wrap, isn't it? One thing I wanted to just highlight, I've uh, quite a few people from the podcast have been booking in calls with me, John, but they're oh, yes, actually- discovery calls. Yes, but they should really be calls for you, which is so funny. <laughs> right. So can we just establish uh, or I guess refresh- the listeners' minds on our individual parts of what we do because... Well, they probably want... They'd rather a free 15 than to pay 350 for an hour, <laughs> Look, right? You get what you pay for. My, my, <laughs> calls are, my calls are to work out if your budget buys what you want in the area and do I actually service that area in Melbourne to buy your first or family home. So it's quite yes. high level in that sense. Whereas John's, there's a reason you have a price tag attached to yours, John, because you go a lot deeper than that. Yeah, put a fair bit of effort into it, to be honest. Um, for those that have had one, hopefully um, you agree with that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, look, I'm happy to do that. Um, we'll put a, a link in the show notes there. But yeah, if, um, only ring Emily if A, you're single. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> John, this is not a dating no. hotline. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, and B, you intend to buy in Melbourne. Correct. Yeah. And then if you call me wanting investment advice, I say, go book a clarity call with John. That's been a lot of my calls recently. <laughs> yeah, 15 minutes over. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Beautiful. Thanks for allowing us into your ears once again. Until next time, stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Career, My Millennial Money, My Millennial Daily and Retire Right. Find these wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 289.